Welcome to episode number 216 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. On this week's show, I interview Julie Heldman, who is the author of a new autobiographical book, which I greatly enjoyed, called Driven, A Daughter's Odyssey. Julie's father, Julius, was a national junior tennis champion in the U.S., but more famously, her mother, Gladys Hellman, was a pivotal player behind the scenes in the formative years of professional open tennis as a publisher and promoter ultimately piloting the women's tour off the ground with a partnership with Virginia Slims. Julie, who was one of the original nine players, along with Billie Jean King, Rosie Casals, and others, signed on at the beginning, and she gives a thorough and illuminating account of the room where it happened in today's parlances. Julie was also a heck of a player herself, spending years in the women's top 10, winning the Italian Open in Rome, and beating Billie Jean King at the 1973 U.S. Open, which was just shortly before the famous Battle of the Sexes match, which Billie Jean won over Bobby Riggs. Julie, after her playing career, moved on to a career in broadcasting, and then a second non-tennis-related career as a lawyer. While admiring her mother's professional successes and advocating for her to be recognized more widely for her contributions to the sport, Julie also details experiencing a lifetime of neglect and emotional abuse from her mother, who was cruel to her in their home life since her early childhood. Those wounds are opened and reopened throughout her years in the sport and beyond, further complicated by her own struggles with mental health, all of which makes for a compelling read for reasons beyond tennis. The book is long, but never a slog, pacey and gripping and painstakingly assembled. The parts from 40, 50, 60 years ago in the book feel fresh, both in content and feeling, and I'm so glad to be able to have Julie on the show this week for a conversation about the book, about her life in tennis, and her thoughts on the sport. I do hope you enjoy this. Julie was one of the top commentators in the game after she retired, and she hasn't lost her gift of gab, which you'll quickly learn as you listen. Here's Julie. Very excited to be joined on the show today by Julie Heldman, who is the author of a new book, Driven, A Daughter's Odyssey. Uh, Julie, first of all, congratulations on the new book, and I really enjoyed reading it, and th thank you for writing it. Uh, I guess, what, what was your... What was your it's a complicated question, probably, but what was your motivation for for writing this book and wanting to get your story on paper? I think my biggest motivation was to explain to the world that my life was far more complicated than anybody could have imagined. Growing up as the daughter of one of the most successful, magnificent contributor to the, the world of tennis and its history, uh, and she was seemed... My mother, see, my, my mother, Gladys Heldman, seemed so uh, terrific to everybody, and nobody knew that my home life was far from terrific. And somehow I needed to write that, and sort of the book wrote me a lot, and then I edited it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I just curious, what was, what was your sort of process for writing this book? Because there's an incredible amount of detail and recollection, and I, I don't know if you have naturally that terrific of a memory, if you were relying on contemporaneous diaries or journals that you kept during during your life because there's a lot of you know pretty incredible detail it, it feels it it doesn't seem like at a lot of points that it's a book that's written you know decades right. later than it than the events that happened 
there were a, a number of things uh, in my when my father was in his late seventies, early eighties. My sister did an oral history with him, mm-hmm. and I found out incredible amounts of material about my parents and some of our early years and. That was an important piece for me to be able to show how the present comes out of the past. And I told what I think is enough of their history to explain who they were. But then as matters went along, yeah, I have a pretty good memory, but I also did uh, read a whole lot of World Tennis Magazine, my mother's magazine. I found that somebody was kind enough to give me her entire collection and for the, um, for the magazine uh, issues that I did not have, I uh, went to, I'm not that far from UCLA, and I went to the library there, and I kept taking out uh, volumes of world tennis. And then I would look online, and then I did some interviews. And what happened in the beginning was I figured it was just going to be a memoir. And uh, Joel Drucker, uh, a tennis historian, read one of my chapters, and he said, it's really good, but, you know, you got the score wrong. Hmm. It was like an eye-opener. I can't do that. I have to be accurate. And so not only did I get as accurate as I could be, I then showed it to several other people afterwards who were tennis historians to down as much as I could. I guess just because one of the, obviously, like you said, one of your principal motivations was wanting to explain who your mother was. And I guess Mm -hmm. in in a, obviously you wrote a 400 plus page book largely about this topic, but I'm curious if you, for, for listeners who may not, be as familiar with her, mm. how, how you would describe who, who Gladys Heldman was, uh, both in, in tennis and, and I guess into you in, in uh, obviously take, right. your t- take your time, well, less than 400 pages, but, you know, take your, right. take your <laughs> right. Well, uh, the, my father was a tennis player. He grew up in Southern California and he actually won the U.S. National Juniors. Mm-hmm. They met, my parents did, at um, at uh, Stanford University, mm-hmm. uh, where my mother uh, was graduated almost at the very top of her class, and my father got a Ph.D. in physical chemistry, so they were academics. But my mother had never taken up tennis until she met my father, and she didn't take up tennis until I, the second of her two children, was born. And she so badly wanted to get out of the house that she fell in love with tennis, and she started playing at the Berkeley Tennis Club like eight hours a day. And she got good enough to be, uh, within two or three years, she was a Texas state champion. Hmm. And she was really loving tennis, but she was also starting to do other things with it and uh, rather than playing. And she started at the age of 31 her own magazine called World Tennis, which became the most influential magazine in the tennis world for the 19 years it was in existence for me, yeah. from 53 to 72 and then uh, while she was doing that, she was always doing promotions in tennis. Uh, and there were a variety of them, and some of them were beyond extraordinary, including in 1962, the U.S. Nationals, which had become the U.S. Open, was failing because the, you know, the Tennis Association was not bringing in uh, great players. So she actually just, uh, came up with this unbelievable idea, which was with nine of her friends, she and nine friends, put up the money to charter a jet to bring the best players in from Europe, which made it possible for Rod Laver to win the the Grand Slam. And it was just made, it just completely revolutionized what was happening. So my mother was always brilliant and popping and fizzling with ideas. 
and her very most famous promotion, uh, after years of arguing in favor of there should be more done for women and more done and more to get open tennis. But when in uh, 1970, when there were more and more t- tournaments as the, in the new open era, when there was prize money, uh, there were more tournaments for the men, and then women were being squeezed out entirely. Yeah. And my mother actually engineered and started the Women's Pro Tour. She brought in the sponsor. She got the players. She got a lot of the tournaments. So she was beyond extraordinary. Some people call her one of the top one or two contributors to tennis ever. Mm-hmm. So there was this person then in my life who was so wonderful to so many. And what I got at home was uh, the other side of it, which was that um, for some reason she um, she was abusive to me farther than more than to anybody. She would be verbal abuse, it would be neglect, it would be isolation. I didn't see any other children other than my sister for from the ages of four to seven. Mm-hmm. So it, it it was a it was an unknown world to everybody. Nobody knew that it was happening. And it took me many, many years to understand what had truly happened because it was so taboo um, to my mother. It was taboo to talk about whatever went on at home. Yeah. No, and that's, and that's, that's the sort of duality of your, of your feelings about your mother, which you, you articulate throughout the book is that there's this incredible immense respect you have for everything she accomplished. Um, And yeah, and, and wanting her to get recognition for, for things that she accomplished that maybe have gone underappreciated at the time and in the telling of the story since telling of the right. birth of pro tennis sense and but 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 also but also having your own private uh struggles and, and pain that she caused yeah um, there are ways even to the present in which she is not understood for what she was there was a movie recently a year ago yeah i was going to ask you about that battle of, yeah. battle of the sexes and you know there are a lot of interesting aspects to that movie but there was certainly one aspect that hit me hard and my sister which was that my mother was not recognized in any way for what she did. She was sort of a la-di-da figure. Yeah, she was played by Sarah Silverman by in the Sarah movie. Sil- yeah. 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 Right. It's sort of the, uh, oh, come on, girls, as opposed to the woman who was working furiously day and night, supporting everybody to make it happen. Yeah, that was one thing I was going to ask, just because that would be mm-hmm. probably a lot of more of younger listeners or just newer to tennis people, the, their primary, maybe first and only exposure to to Gladys right. as, a, as a character um, is, is Sarah Silverman's portrayal of her. And I'm just curious if you can expand on that, what you thought of wh- how, how Sarah did playing your mother just as, as a person, as a personality, and also the, the role that she was, how her role was written in that movie, if it did her, if it did her any sort of justice. Right. Uh, no, it did not do her justice at all. I just take the movie as fiction. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, core movies of the, what happened in, in the past, have to be abbreviated. No. I don't think yeah. it needed to have been changed. The facts needed to have been changed as much. And in fact, I think the, the actual facts, which I write about, in the, as you say, in detail, are far more interesting <laughs> than the glossed over facts, both about uh, my mother and all the other people who were involved. Uh, Jack Kramer in the movie is treated as a permanent evil demon who shows up in a... Um, men's club with a tuxedo. Yeah. Jack Kramer 
was a Southern California kid who was a tennis player first. He acted really awful to us during the beginning of the Women's Pro Tour, but that was not the person portrayed, and that's why we just have to call it fiction. And in terms of who my mother was, I mean, I think some of that had, a bunch of that had to do with the script, and it wasn't Sarah Silverman's fault. But on the other hand, nobody seems to have looked into who my mother really was, whether it was the, um, uh, the, the person who read the script or the Sarah Silverman or, or whoever. It just was, it, was, it was, didn't show up. And my mother was this person who was brilliant, uh, energetic beyond anything. When she's, my mother had her magazine for 19 years. Mm-hmm. When she sold it in 72 she always liked to claim that she was replaced by seven men. Yeah. yeah. Because she did so much. And, you know, it's probably close to the truth. She worked day and night. And that certainly, there's no, nothing about that in the movie. It was fiction. Yeah. I, I guess just in terms of the, the spirit of the movie, I guess, in terms of, that's one of the things I think the movie was, it's, was trying to tell a historic story and, in theory, wanted to get the facts right, but it also just kind of cultivated a mood of that era of what the what women's tennis felt like in nineteen the early nineteen seventies. I guess did, did that did that part ring true to you? The sort of the the pioneering aspect of it. Well, to me, the tennis in the nineteen seventies was far grittier mm. than what could show up on the screen. I mean, that they we, there was an enormous amount of camaraderie. We were all in this together, women who were going to make a place for themselves. Most of us didn't think, including me, didn't think of us as feminists. We were just doing what we had to do for ourselves and for the future of women's tennis. But that's not kind of a, oh, let's get our hair done kind of thing. Not that anybody has anything against getting hair done, but it um, it, it was far more, you know, what does a tennis player do? You get up in the morning, you eat, you practice, you shower. You get ready for a match. You you play the match. You you practice. I mean, you you shower. You eat. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 not an easy existence, and particularly in that era when, in the very first year or two, a lot of the tournaments were not brilliantly run. They were thrown together so quickly to make a tour happen. So, as I say, grittier, and and the life was. You know, often difficult. There wasn't that much money in the early years. We actually stayed with people in housing. And when I was, uh, and then you, 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 that was a really nice part some of the time, and how good people were, how nice the people were. One time, you know, we were we were viewed as uh, people on the forefront uh, of of the women's movement. Yeah. And when I was, was twenty four, I stayed with somebody in Oklahoma City. And nice family, and a man and a wife, young young couple. Oh, I remember the story. And, this is a good story, yeah. Yeah. And when the, when the man uh, went to work in the morning, the woman sat me down and she said, you're a free woman. Should I get a divorce? <laughs> <laughs> I am 24. I've only had disastrous relationships myself. What do I know? <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, that is kind of how we were viewed. And in some ways, we began to see it more ourselves, too, because yeah. everywhere we looked, we were talking on, you know, a part of our job back then was to promote the tour in any way possible. That meant going to cocktail parties. It meant uh, giving clinics. It 
men talking to, uh, to the, the press who had absolutely no idea what we were doing. Yeah. Some of the people who came around had no clue about tennis. One woman came in and uh, I was assigned to her and she had never seen tennis. She was, the, she was sent because she was a woman, so they sent her because she was into fashion. Yeah. She'd never seen a forehand. She'd never seen a tennis dress. So I had to show her what all of that was. Not typically get on the TV and there would be all men TV announcers and or, you know, news guys and they would start wondering what we're doing and having no clue. They'd never seen the tennis, the women's tennis. They had no idea who was who and we'd actually literally have to explain everything to yeah. them starting from scratch. I, I, so, yeah. in terms of the, was the battle of the sexes, did it give a real feel? No, it was far slicker. Hmm. Plus, it, it had, um, the battle of the sexes had a theme uh, about uh, uh, Billie Jean's coming out. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, or not yet coming out. And that was a, such a significant piece, but that was her personal life that hardly impacted the rest of us. Mm. Yeah, that did get a lot of screen time in the movie. It was a lot devoted to that sort of romantic aspect. And, and it was, I think it was meant because it was it came out in 2017. That movie could not have been made before. Right. In that we were, we, there were all, there've always been some, the lesbian tennis players on the tour. And it was all, it was for much of the time hidden for, out of fear that if it came out, uh, the tour would be ruined. Yeah. And it didn't so that's another reason why we didn't know. Yeah. No, it didn't come out for another uh, eight years or so after Battle of Sexes. Except, except Martina. Martina yeah. Navratilova was pretty upfront from the start. Yeah. And, um, but you know, I believe that Billie Jean went to the Virginia Slips, the main sponsor, and said she wanted to come out. And they said, you can't, you absolutely can't. You'll ruin it for everybody. Hmm. Imagine how that was for her. Yeah. Very hard. But that was more of the reality than what we were seeing on the screen, yeah. which was, yes, romantic and this and that. But pretty much, I'd say, other than the fact that Billie Jean beat Bobby Riggs and it was a, it was a circus atmosphere for months, other than that, I'd say it's 70, 80 percent fiction, yeah. the film. I, I, and I guess I'm curious to get your take. Part of the some of the more interesting parts of the book are about sure. the formation of the women's tour and the meetings behind closed doors that happened uh, with, you know, yeah. with Billy and her husband, Larry, who was also very involved and very hands-on in the organizing of, of women's tennis in the early days and, and sort of a little bit of uh, power struggles between them and, and your mother um, in, in the early yeah. days and the vote that was held in terms of who should, who should run it. And I feel like this part of the story, even though obviously your mother was enshrined in the hall of fame as being a, tennis you know contributor and uh has had her achievements recognized in some ways um the the story as it gets told now is very much glossed over and actually after i read after i finished your book i got a copy of james blake's recent book out of the library and uh he it's sort of about it's about sports and activism is what it's about it's it's sort of a history and he's a ghostwriter who were co-writer who worked with as well i just want i just want to read you these passages um, okay. That sort of that because there's a bit of a chapter on Billy, and I feel like it just sort of simplifies things or flattens things in a way that don't show the texture. So um, here are two two basic lines. It says um, in 1973, King threatened to boycott the U.S. Open unless women were awarded equal prize money as men, and won. Uh, using her leverage as the defending champion, 
King secured for female champions the same prize purse as the men's champion. And then on the tour, uh, it says about Billy. In 1970, she founded the Women's Tennis Association to unite all of women's tennis in one tour and create tournaments to play for prize money. She started the WTA by getting nine players, the original nine, to sign $1 contracts to compete in a new tour, the Virginia Slim Series. Her dream in creating an association was for every girl from all over the world to know that if she was good enough, there'd be a place to play, essentially. Um, and I guess then that's and that's sort of the, you know, this is I, I wanted to pick this because it's sort of a. This is James Blake's book. It's not primarily about this, but it's how it gets sort of put in a nutshell. Um, so and, he, he and his ghost, he and his ghostwriter needed to spend more time at the UCLA library. But those sort of mythologies, or that um, I, I think, and I'm not saying this to be critical of her per se, uh, even though there are there are definitely frustrations that you share with your with your mother feeling unappreciated and overlooked by Billie Jean. But it's it's sort of her her as the continuing icon of this moment she's set a bunch of the narrative is still set around her and i I think one of the one of the goals for your book seems to be clear that you know to get appreciation for for what your mother and and for joe coleman who was coleman who was at uh uh uh, philip morris also uh, as a crucial person you sort of give all three of them equal shares of the credit and i don't think i don't think in your book you diminish what billy jean did per se but you sort of try to put it in in context i'm curious just how you how you see what you what you think of her legacy and how and how she's sort of been shaped into a, a cultural figure as someone who knew her, competed against her, and was with her in a lot of these uh, formative stages. Let me go back to what you read from the book. Yeah. Um, lots of factual errors. Yeah. The WTA was not started in 1970. Billie Jean did not start the tournament in 1970. Billie Jean was the star of the tour. And she was also this fabulous person with the press. She was charismatic both with the audience and with the press. Mm-hmm. But virtually everything else you said about that is wrong, including 1973 open uh, equal prize money. I found out from somebody who read the book who knew exactly who had done it. My parents uh, got, got to know Joe Coleman, who was an essential piece of the puzzle, as you said, at their country club. Yeah. In New York City, yeah. called Century Country Club. There was a guy at the country club who decided, maybe because he'd heard what Billy Jean was saying, maybe because he'd heard what my mother and Joe Coleman was saying. We, I do not know. But I do know that he said that his company, which had a, a Bristol Myers, mm-hmm. I believe mm-hmm. that was, uh, would put up the amount of money that made women's prize money equal men's prize money. Billie Jean King was not at either the press conference for that, nor was she mentioned. The fact that she had made noises about it was important. Noises is, is an understating. She'd said no. that's not right, no. that we don't get equal prize money. But this was not hers. So at the, and I really double checked because I could not find it. And I got lucky, somebody told me. But um, it, what that all, pretty much every sentence in those two bits you wrote me needed to be researched and run by historians because they're just not correct. Yeah. I, I, I found, I found just in my, doing my own research, the 19th, the equal prize money thing at the U S open is, is a strange, there's very little record of how it came to be. It just sort right. of pops up in the paper one day at this press conference. And you mentioned, I think Bristol Myers, and I believe, uh, I, I, I'm think I hope that I've 
I'm getting this right. I know one brand that was involved was Ban Deodorant. Nope. Yeah, um, that's correct. Yeah, and that's I guess I, I don't know if that's a Bristol Myers brand off the top of my head, but they were um, they sort of said, you know, this situation. They made a pun out of it. They said this prize money situation stinks, and so we, the deodorant <laughs> company, are going to come in and, and make this all smell better, essentially, by giving women equality. And and that that whole outside force of it is again lost in the other retelling, which happens all the time, where the USTA takes a great amount of pride. And not completely incorrectly, but takes a great amount of pride and ownership in being the first Grand Slam to offer equal prize money in 1973. And they didn't really do it themselves. Uh, It was was not their own initiative. I mean, they they were, to their credit, decades ahead of everyone else. And they didn't reject the idea. um, But it wasn't really wasn't really their own initiative and their own push internally for it came from came from the outside. There's also one extra piece. And I don't know what this means in, in terms of it. But um, Billy Talbert was the um, director of the U.S. Open starting, I think, in 1970. Mm-hmm. And he would have had some involvement in agreeing to this uh, arrangement where the women's prize money would become equal. So, I, you know, the, the USTA in general, USTA in general, is, uh, it changes every few years because there's volunteers coming up. And so it's it's hard for the uh, the USTA back then bumbled a lot. Yeah, uh, they, they they were not high quality, and more recently there've been a, a bunch of high quality people. But it, it was a, a bumbling set of volunteers who, at the very first tournaments of the women's tennis, turned almost viciously against us. They did not want us to succeed, hmm. and we succeeded. Because my mother could do all that stuff, and because all of us stuck our jaws out and said, you won't do this to us. Yeah. Same thing with the Australian Tennis Association. Two of the original nine were Australian, and they were they, they were fought tooth and nail by the Australian Association. So yeah. I think you were asking a question that I didn't answer when we were talking about Billy Jean's. I was going to – okay, yeah. So I guess the question I think I did ask there is just Billy Jean has obviously become this – tremendous cultural icon. I mean, even this year at the U S open, which I was very excited to see, they had Adidas had a line of her, you know, sort of retro shoes and t-shirts and Billie Jean was sort of the star of a, an ad campaign for apparel. And I, I struck me because I mean, even though obviously I have a lot of respect for Billie Jean as a, as a former player, I had never seen any female player period, you know, have her, her name on, on shoes or on t-shirts in that sort of way. Uh, from a, a company like Adidas, and so, and that, that's a that's one small example of it. But you know, obviously, she was awarded Presidential Medal of Honor, Freedom, something like that, uh-huh. and and she's become this, and they got the tennis center named after her, um, and become this sort of icon for you know LGBT rights. She was in the Pride Parade in New York this year, one of the Grand Marshals of that parade, I think, is the title. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm I'm just curious, I'm just curious what you think of how, as someone who was there with her, if you think that uh, the way that she's portrayed is 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 fair because I, I, I'm just I'm just one of the things I've valued most about your book is that it was an alternate version of events. It was an alternate perspective from someone else who was also there. And I feel like mm-hmm. so often the story has been told and again, not to criticize her, but it's just been a w- sort of one track story through her interpretation, her recollections and her vision. And, I'm, and so I'm just curious what you make of, of overall of, of what she's done in the last, uh, you know, 40 odd years. <laughs> 50 years, yeah. yeah. Almost nothing but now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think 
Billie Jean is legitimately an icon. Yeah. For a whole number of reasons, as I said, for her play, for her charisma, for standing up for causes. Um, I think nobody is perfect, and somehow there's come to a stop time that Billie Jean is portrayed as perfect, so much so that she and the women tennis players seem to think that she did more than she did. Mm. What she did was plenty good enough, but the uh, uh, some of the kind of over-the-top, life wouldn't be the same without Billie Jean, but I'm, I'm joking, but the yeah. point being, everybody, I, I, I kind of like um, the warts and all. Yeah. In some ways, to me, that raises people up if, if they can show more of who they are. Yeah. And, you know, Billie Jean has done enough to merit a great deal, and that's fine. Yeah. No, I, I think that's uh, that's definitely fits my ethos of, of covering tennis just as a whole. You know, I, I'm very much into warts and, and into, and I see, I see, I see, I see but I see, and it's just it's honest as a way of portraying, and I feel like this comes up probably most currently with how Serena is portrayed in the sport, um, where there's this, uh, there can be a very glossy, you know, magazine cover image of her um, that doesn't really do her complexity justice. Right. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a praising story that's far less interesting and far, you know, more sterile. I guess, than, than the truth in a way that doesn't do, I don't think does her justice and doesn't do anybody. I, I think service. that we all, not we, not me, but people who become famous and want to be famous end up at a crossroads. Mm. I want to be, you want to be seriously famous and you go to the corner store and people are stopping you. You have no freedom. You sit down to dinner, you have no freedom. And it has to change you. And there are lots of decisions to be made along the way. And some of those decisions have to be to protect your privacy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, uh, there's, you know, sometimes you sacrifice something in order to protect your privacy. Yeah. And then on the other side, you sacrifice your privacy and other things to become the other thing. It's not an easy bunch of things. Unfortunately, I didn't have to make those decisions. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, so I'm curious. You mentioned something earlier about the the anecdote about the the woman who you were saying with asking you if she should get a divorce, and just that reflecting, um, which is one of again the funnier moments in the book. And I was curious, um, just in terms of that conception that you and this comes up a lot in the in the movie. I guess kind of addresses it too. The sort of dual nature of of being an athlete and also being an activist, and it comes up mm-hmm. and just being a feminist, you know. Uh, if not icon, maybe too strong a word, at least a feminist, you know, figure in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes up a lot in, I'm guessing you've read Grace Lichtenstein's book about the 1973 yeah. season. So that, that, that sort of wrestles with this question a lot too. Um, but um, I'm curious what you think, how you think that model, as much as you, I don't know, I'm not sure how much you follow the game currently, but what what sort of, if that's receded or if and when, because I feel like right now, I, you know, I don't very rarely hear female players talk about their importance as, you know, anything resembling a political figure. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that's something that they sort of uh, overlook or, or shy away from a lot um, and or just don't think that it's their responsibility. Well, I think they have inherited the world of tennis, which is, which is the product of a lot of people's hard work. In the early years, um, Billie Jean was certainly involved in the Tennis Association, Rosie, 
Casal, so were Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. Mm-hmm. Now I don't see that. Now I see people, it's, 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 it's big business is what I see, where you have a coach, you have a trainer, you have a nutritionist, if you're way up at top. Yeah. Uh, and your real role is to shut everything out and win. And how do you do that? Well, you have to put all of this stuff together, and if you don't have it just right, if you're not emotionally right, so you have to be, you have to be selfish. You have to be self-focused. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the world of women's tennis would probably be better if more women were involved, more of the players were involved in running the game. But I think everything is so fine-tuned to the nth degree to become the best player you can be that it's pretty hard to balance those things. Yeah. No, definitely. And, and, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think there was, like you, you mentioned the sort of chain of people, and I think the chain did break at some point where the, yeah. you know, the top players and Venus Williams obviously gets, gets cited a lot as being, you know, someone right. who was, and was an advocate for equal prize money. And Serena's been a, a pretty good speaker when she's asked about, you know, equal prize money issues or women's issues. And, and she's definitely embraced her larger societal uh, power and visibility. And, and that came up obviously a lot in this U S open uh, controversy that she was in this year. Um, but it, but there was sort of a, I think it probably, I think people I've talked to said it sort of came with Steffi Graf was the one who didn't, right. who, who didn't, right. didn't, right. didn't accept the torch when it was passed to her sort of for being a leader for the women. And, and she was just said, no, I'm just here to play tennis. And, and, that was something that was, you know, frustrating for people, but at the same time, difficult to totally begrudge, you know, because she is, her job is to play tennis, but she didn't, and if she didn't think, this is a more defensive take of her, I'm sure people, other people would say it'd be far more critical, but her not taking that up uh, was She was also her a very private person. Yeah, definitely. And, and that had to impact everything. Yeah. I just want to weigh in for a moment on Serena and okay. women's rights. I am seeing, as you are, Serena emerging in a number of ways, talking not just about herself but about women with children and women's rights in general. I thought her excuse about uh, women were treated differently during the U.S. Open finals, uh, it, 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 it didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's okay to say, yes, I was bad, but I shouldn't have been um, uh, in a violation because others were worse, whether it's men or anybody else. I, I, I am not willing to assess how bad what she did, but I think that's not a good way of saying women's rights. I think her other discussions about women's rights hold more water for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, she's a fabulous champion. And when she's at her best, there's never been anybody better. Not in many ways, not close. Yeah. But she's not always at her best. And when she isn't at her best, she needs to crank herself up emotionally. Live by the sword. Die by the sword. Mm. Crank yourself up. Close to out of control can happen. Yeah. Not, not just once. So I'm not saying the situation was her fault because I think the the people who make the rules made an, a rule about coaching that is impossible to enforce equi- equitably. Yeah. But I also think that there was some information 
about the um, the umpire that he should not have ever been put on that match. And when he was on the match, he could have given her a soft warning. Mm-hmm. Having said all of that, her remarks about she's being mistreated because she's a woman don't make it for me. Okay. No, I I, I think that I, that's we said we had a whole podcast about this topic right after it happened, and I definitely hit a lot of those similar similar points. So you're not alone in any of those in any of those takes. Um, I'm I'm curious, I guess then, yeah, what you just talking about because um, I wasn't sure how much how much you follow the current women's game and the women's landscape. But I guess just just in broad in broad strokes, what do you think about where women's tennis is today from from where it started? What do you think about its current place in the world in, in 2018? Yeah. I, I really haven't seen it up close. I watch it moderately much on the TV, mm-hmm. and I take what some of the announcers say to be true, which is there's so many players who can play so well in any given moment that that brings some of the un the, 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 far more people can win. I also have seen, and I, I'm clearly not alone that a lot of the women who have won majors, I know we call them the slams, but I call them the majors. Yeah. And it will won, the women who have won the, the majors then don't do well for a while. And it would seem unlikely to me that some of the champions of my era, that they, that, that would have happened to them. There was, there was always a separateness to champions. Yeah. There was always some uh, when they, when it came to the crunch, they truly would play better, as Chris Everett tends to say on the TV. But I think that um, there are so many players that are so good. I mean, I had a terrible serve. I would never have made it. These people can serve like bombs. It's fabulous. It's just <laughs> I didn't know you could get all these people to do that. And there's so much good stuff. Yeah. And they're so close that it's just a few points either way. And emotions really make a difference. They always did, but there were always some women, usually one or two in any era, sometimes a few more, who would stand apart from the others because of their ability to uh, pull it together in the crunch. And that, I don't see the same thing, and I honestly don't know why. I think it's a reasonable argument to say there's so many good ones. Yeah. But why is it that the people at the top have such difficulty staying at the top and winning consistently? I think the depth is definitely better, and I'm sure you can attest to speak to this. I mean, your experiences in, as a seated player, I mean, you were a top four, top ten player for a long time. And yeah. uh, there was probably early on at Grand Slam events or majors, uh, there was, uh, and even maybe some of the bigger draws in other events, because a lot of times the tournaments had very small draws on the Virginia mm-hmm. Slims events, but right. there was, um, there were a lot of kind of gimme first rounds and there would just be there's an go, easy you, ride yeah, off you, into you, the you, quarters. Yeah. You, you'd know that you were not going to get challenged early on. Right. There just wouldn't be the same. And I think that's the biggest difference right now or the biggest landscape. I think the number 50 player in the world, whoever that is this week is better than they've ever been. You know, I think that right. that, that depth is there and, and you see it sometimes in extreme form. Like we're recording this, interview during the tournament in Wuhan, China, where only one of the top of the 16 seeds even made the quarterfinals. Um, and that was number 16. So it's it, so it's it's this remarkable, complete, you know, reversal or turning inside out depth. And I think it makes a lot of matches individually very compelling because you go watch number five versus number 35 and 
you don't really think it's in the bag for number five whatsoever. And, and, and so that makes it exciting when you're there watching it. But big picture, broad strokes, trying to figure out the arc of the tour and who's becoming a superstar and becoming a sort of a pillar of the tour. That That's that's trickier at times. So. I think the changes in the serves have a lot to do with it. Hmm. To be able to get free points on the days that your serve is working. Yeah. There were very few in my era who had that. The rackets were not going to help yeah. in that era. But I, th- I think there's a lot of things, but I do think that the serve has far bigger impact in more matches than it used to. Yeah. And certainly Serena, obviously, has ridden her serve to 23 oh, yeah. Grand Slam titles. And Naomi Osaka, who just won the U.S. Open, is a great serve. And yeah, a lot, uh-huh. of, a lot of the top, not every, not all the top players have amazing serves for sure. No, but but like but a lot of it, it, can't, it can't exactly or, or Kerber even, but it has a yeah. it, it can be a point of distinction for for sure. Um, I, I'm, right. cur- I'm curious just to be mentioned about the champions, and I was, this is one question I sort of had reading your book about just about your own career, um, which I which I mentioned or, or as, like I said, you reached number four, I believe, and the rankings weren't as official or computerized back then, but no. <laughs> there were sort of consensuses there, and writers would put out their own rankings and. Everyone agreed you were really good. Uh, let's put it that way. But I'm I'm curious if you thought that there was sort of an, an echelon of of being a champion that you was going to be unattainable for you. I didn't I, I couldn't tell from from your writing if you went into the U.S. Open or Wimbledon or French Open thinking that you really were contending for those titles, um, or if you or if you had a sort of block in your head that you that you were only going to go so far and then and then top out. I'm just curious which which would be I'm sure there are players today who have that, but with the sort of, not to call it randomness is an unfair word, but with the openness of the results today, I think everybody sort of believes they can win. But I'm curious what you I would what definitely you say that I, that I did not think of myself as a candidate to win one of the majors. Hmm. But there were reasons. And uh, uh, in an era when I might have had more of a chance, I had a lot of emotional and physical setbacks. So there was a, a year when I had, was at least on the scorecard. <laughs> but um, in many ways, that isn't what even I was going for. I wanted to be able to enjoy a life as well as I could. And um, the emotional, emotional abuse I took as a child made that very fragile for me. Mm. And I also was... Uh, not treated as somebody who could ever be some great player. Yeah. My mother would have famous tennis players come around, Pancho Gonzalez, Lou Hode, Pancho Segura, all those, and nobody talked to me. Nobody said, how do you play? I wasn't treated as if I had some substance, even once I started to do well. Yeah. And it has an impact. And so, but uh, I think... Even more, once I did actually start becoming really, really good, um, there were a lot of tough things that happened to me. Yeah. And uh, that did not help. I may not have made it anyway. I'm not um, fooling myself. But those difficult things that happened, which I, the, the, the emotional stuff was pretty darn terrible. Yeah. And the physical stuff, too. I mean, I busted up my knee, and I got all the wrong advice, and uh, it ended up being a mess. I I played for eight months on a knee that had a ripped-up, torn meniscus. 
I had five wins over women in the top ten in the world while playing on one leg, one and a half. Yeah. But after that, it was difficult. So I'm not saying I would have made it. I'm saying that my chances would have been greater and I might have had a different outlook. But that's not what happened. You talk, You mentioned the emotional struggles you went through at the time. Yeah. And that was obviously takes up a, a massive part of this book, your emotional yeah. wounds you had throughout this time. And there was a, a mid-career suicide attempt even, which is, right. which is pretty yeah. remarkable to hear that that sort of happened right I mean, closer to the end, but pretty much in the in the middle of your playing days, and that these were uh, a lot of different things you were going through. And I'm just I'm just curious um, for putting this all on paper and chronicling all this. And I and I had this a little bit too. I, I read uh, a couple different books that reminded me of when I was reading it. Elena Dockich came out with a book uh, last year uh, yeah. about her uh-huh. about her and her father was famously and publicly uh, abusive and right. very and was a you know, much more infamous character in the sport, and she chronicles in completely and uh, uh, relentless detail every single beating she took, pretty much at every tournament that she oh. had from him. Um, and there's also just another book. I just went to a book reading, actually, or not book reading, a book speaking event uh, last week with Sally Field. It just came out with her own oh. memoir, uh-huh. and she's probably roughly similar age to you, I'm guessing. Yep. And and she and she also talked about her struggles with her mother, who was. Uh, it, not completely similar, but was a much. I thought a parallel to you there. She was an actress, but not of any, you know, great repute, and just sort of the emotional abuse. And I haven't read her book yet, but just from hearing, mm-hmm. hearing what that was about. Um, and I'm just curious what the, what the process was like for you writing this book and going into such detail and and, and opening. The, and I, don't, I don't know if you felt like you were opening wounds. If if this was a a healing process for you, I mean, you talk the, the latter part of the book is a lot about your mental health struggles and, um, and trying to cope with that and different, different ways you've gone through it. So I'm hoping this book was a, a healing process for you, but I'm, I'm wondering if it was, if it was painful, if it was cathartic, if it was alternately all of the above, if it was something else entirely or, or what it was like, uh, sort of trying to make sense of all this and trying to narrate your own life story, uh, in a way. Uh, to a very large degree, uh, doing the thinking, about what happened to me, mm-hmm. and the writing was cathartic. Hmm. Good. Because Good. Uh, one of my biggest issues, and I would assume that it's so for a lot of trauma survivors, is not being able to believe what I knew had happened. To not be able to take it in at an emotional level. It was like, oh, that happened? Okay. But, um, and it was... Um, so the truth is enormously powerful. And to be able to believe my own truth, and you know, I, I'm I'm assuming that the people who have heard about the book or are reading the book never knew any of what I was talking about at home at my my from the, what I had gotten from my mother. Nobody knew that that happened. Yeah, yeah. So that I was living in the world that she was very dominant in, living sort of a lie. Because there was, I was not allowed to talk about it, and I wasn't supposed to believe it. So um, it, that the power of that truth has been terrific for me. Writing it has uh, been, in some ways, if, if I stop believing my own truth, it's there now. Yeah. And because it is really hard for any, I think, victim of abuse to be able to take in 
what happened and to be able to talk about it. And now that I have been able to do it, yes, it's been enormously helpful. And I, I truly uh, believe that others may well find something good in that, in that they can talk of their own truths too and deal with them as well as they can. There's Everybody has their own process, their own timetable. And um, so I can't say, well, now you can go out and do it. Of course not. Everybody has to kind of figure their way through. And um, it's, as I said, even from the very beginning, one of the biggest issues for me was to find within me and in the facts and anything what really happened and to be able to tell the people who thought that I lived this charmed life, which is not true. No. Were you were you nervous or, or at all or, or reluctant to, to share the story to to tell people? Because uh, for people who did who did know you then and did know your mother then, um, this would obviously uh, you didn't tell many people about this in the at, as it was happening. Really, at least that's what you say in the book. And you, your friend uh, Ingrid, who is a frequent touring companion of yours, I think you tell her in one scene, and she sort of didn't believe that what she was hearing, more or less, or didn't wasn't ready to accept what you were telling her. Um, right, and, I, w- I was. Yeah. I was. It was the first time I ever went to a therapist. Yeah. And I didn't go because I wanted to. I did because my my internist said I'd better go, so I did. And after the second time I went to the therapist, I could not stop crying. Hmm. So I did. I called Ingrid and I said, it's about my mother. She said, she's far away. You're fine. Which would be a totally normal thing to say, except she could not possibly have taken in even a piece of what I was going through. And that, too, was very difficult for me, knowing that I had to live in that world, then the tennis world, where nobody could possibly get what I'm saying and nobody would want to. And by the time I came to writing the book and publishing it, a couple of my mother's friends are still alive. Mm-hmm. And it was scaring the willies out of me. What would they would say to me? Would they be angry at me? And, um, you know, you shouldn't say so much. I, I, I don't feel that way right now. I have no idea if I'll be able to uh, exercise the remaining demons. Mm-hmm. But uh, there have been many. Yeah, and 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 hopefully this was a, a healing process for you. I, I was I was just going to ask that. I guess if you're, what you think people who who knew both of you at the time would make of it, if that's a concern to you, or if you're if what or how, I guess maybe more directly, like how this should, should if it should affect how uh, Gladys Heldman is remembered in, in among those in the tennis community. Well, I hope they remember all the good that she did. But I, um, I am still sometimes scared that somebody is going to be mad at me hmm. or writing what is basically, for me, my truth and frequently what is the truth of you know what happened in the outside world too. But uh, I think that's a lifetime of being frightened for speaking up. Even though I spoke up Big time, a lot of times. Yeah. It would often be frightening, and I would just do it because it was important, including the very beginning days 
uh, the Houston tournament that started the Women's Pro Tour, where I had to stand up, uh, and my mother would not speak in her own behalf about whether she or Larry King, Billie Jean's husband, would run the tour. And I never felt good about what I said, but my mother refused to talk. She said I had to do it. Yeah. And so, um, no, I you know I sometimes these things remain difficult. I am so much better now in many many ways than I have ever been. These are like the happiest days of my life. Okay. I'm 72. I'm very glad to hear that. It's interesting because the last 50 pages or so of the book are are pretty rough in terms of the struggles you've gone through and the different uh breakdowns you've had i guess at, yeah. at different times and and mental health and, and i guess just trying to put that in a in a tennis context there's um i don't know if you've heard anything about the tennis player rebecca marino who's a uh who's a canadian tennis player she stepped away from the tour uh dealing with depression and she was uh about 22 i want to say and she came back mm-hmm. after five years off and she's coming back this year now and having pretty wow. decent results in coming back, um, but it took a long time and, and, and it did sort of open up some conversations about mental health uh, in uh-huh. tennis and and how, and obviously the Dockage book and other people who've had more traumatic stories they get talked about as well. Um, but, mm-hmm. I, but I guess be, mental health and tennis, um, and as you look back with more clarity about what your mental health was back then that you might not have been able to sense or, you know, articulate at the time, is, is how does mental health and, and mental illness, how does that fit into a life in tennis? I mean, because it seems like in some ways, a lot of your, uh, the abuse you took and the, and the pain you felt, you were able to channel in some productive ways on court um, and in yep. your career. Um, and certainly I think uh, Dockage would probably, people would say similar, um, but at the same time, it also was this incredible weight on you. And so it can go kind of go both ways. I'm not, I'm not saying at all people should, try to get a mental health issue to help their tennis, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated uh, you know, thing. It's not a one result or one outcome thing. It, it can be all over the place. Yeah, I had, uh, I was not adversely impacted every day. I was um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 50, Mm-hmm. And I look back at it, I had very clear onset at 18. So between the ages of 18 and 15, a lot of things bumped up and down, which is not atypical for bipolar. Bipolar disorder requires, a diagnosis requires that you have um, some uh, pr- profound depression and some mania in your life. I don't know exactly how much, but it does not require that you feel mentally that deeply unwell all the time. Mm. And that's fairly, fairly certainly what happened to me. I had a tough time for a couple of months, when it, the first time when I was 18. When I was 19, it was severe after breaking up with a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And I out of nowhere, got an opportunity to play the Fed Cup. I played number two for the United States. Billie Jean King played number one in Torino, in Italy. And um, I won all my singles matches and acted quite normally. During the day and every night, 
I was in my own room flooded with demons. So there was, uh, was a pretty unusual circumstance. And several months after that, I was so emotionally unstable that I said I was quitting tennis forever because I thought tennis was the problem. And then several years after that, I came back to see if I could have fun playing tennis. And it was, you know, up and down, around. I did great in 1969. I had a horrifying emotional year in 1970. Uh, and uh, as you said, I had an attempted suicide mm-hmm. about four or five months before Houston in the beginning of the Women's Pro Tour. So it was absolutely a crazy time for me. Crazy, literally crazy, mm-hmm. Michael. And there was a couple other times. In 1974, I did really well. A guy ranked, one person said number five in the world. I forgot what the other. But um, after I had been doing well for a bunch of months, all of a sudden, I crashed. And for about three or four months. So it wasn't, um, as I said, it wasn't ongoing. But it was just, and I didn't know what it was. I had no idea, and nobody else did, too. Nobody was talking about bipolar at that time. They might have called it manic depressive, but they might not have known. So um, we're living in a different era where I can hope that people who have the kinds of difficulties that I had would be able to get help sooner and that the help they get would be good because sometimes not every psychiatrist is equally adept right. at figuring out. And a, a bad, or somebody who isn't good enough can actually make things a lot worse. But there are people who can help, and that's important. That is definitely important. I, I, I'm, you're, I'm glad to hear you say that these are some of the better times of your life right now and that your healing process is, is going on. And that's because I wasn't, the book definitely ends on a positive note at the last at the last leaving of it where you where you finish it um and actually i was i was surprised to hear this and you mentioned this as sort of a a brief respite from your struggles in uh 2012 where uh i that was actually the only time i think i've seen you i was at i was at i was in charleston where they had the uh original nine reunion uh Mm -hmm. all done if you were able to come back together um, I don't. I don't remember. I don't think we spoke then, and that was pretty early in when I was covering tennis full time, and kind of wish that event had happened later in my in my time in tennis. So I realized I could have appreciated more how remarkable that was to get all nine of you uh, together there. Um, yeah. But but I'm curious what what that reunion was like. What what it's like being uh, in this group, and what what you think has sort of become of these nine women who had different careers then and different stories. I mean, Billie Jean obviously by far the most prominent one of them, and then. I mean, probably next most famous is Rosie or, or Nancy Ritchie, but that's a big step down from Billie Jean. Um, and then the rest, and a lot, a lot of the other players didn't have particularly amazing careers, but they still are part of this group. And, and I'm just curious what you, from what you gathered at that sort of, you know, pseudo high school or college reunion that you guys had about where, mm-hmm. where being part of this, um, part of this moment sets you up for the rest of your life, or if it's just, if everyone takes it their own own way you know what uh, sort of what it was yeah yeah it was i i thought it was completely totally wonderful and that, that's be clear that i hadn't kind of been out and about for a very long time yeah so as i 
said in the book, it was it felt like I'd been released from a dozen years in an emotional prison. Mm-hmm. My, my breakdown of um, the year 2000, uh, not including those wonderful months in 2000 to 2012, basically lasted about 15 years. Yeah. So not to have that, to be able to meet with people and uh, have conversations like this on the phone. I would not have been able to have that in those early years. It just wouldn't have happened. Mm. But to be back with the people, and we, we were together in the trenches. We, very few of us know each, knew each other very well. But we have this peace that we're all hanging together, that we belong together because of what we did. And what we continued to do after that as the tour became larger and other people committed as quickly as possible. And it was, there's a, such a, a feeling like having been in a war zone and we had to depend on each other. And then go out on the court and try to beat each other. Yeah. But uh, it, was, it was wonderful to see them and have the different relationships that I had with the different ones of them. And uh, a couple of them I have kept in close touch with, but the others have not so much, not for any reason, just other than our lives moved along. Yeah. I, I'm curious, you mentioned in the book also in, in your post-career weren't years working on a, a pension project for the yeah. players of that era. And I'm curious where that's left off, because I, 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 that's one thing uh-huh. that must be incredibly striking to you at Modern Tennis now, you know, the money... Uh, Billie Jean talked about, uh, Billie Jean was famously, uh, in the early seventies, uh, set a goal of earning a hundred thousand dollars in prize money in a year. And now yeah. you get that for making the third round of a grand slam. Of <laughs> I mean, it's just, they just hand it wow. out like, you know, so much easier. And obviously there's inflation and things like that, but the amount of money in, in the sport is incredibly higher now. And I'm curious what you, what players of your generation make of that. And if they feel as if they've been at all left behind or, or neglected or forgotten in this uh, in this cash infusion where the builders of the sport might not be able to reap well, the rewards. The uh, men's tennis, the ATP, the Men's Tennis Association, um, grandfathered in players. Well, some were grandfathered and some were, they went back. From eight, ni- 1980, they went backwards. Mm-hmm. The Women's Tennis Association did not go backwards. So there are players during about a 15 to 17 year period who played on the women's pro tour and got nothing, Hmm. nothing related to a pension. I've worked uh, together with uh, three or four uh, players, including um, uh, Cynthia Derner and Barbara Jordan and Paula Smith and they worked their off, and um, it looks like there is going to be some money given to the older players, not as much as we should have, we would have wanted. But I think there are issues, and there's not a tour sponsor, and that money isn't flowing is is in, in such a big way as they would hope. But um, It'll be more of recognition than a true financial boon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But even the recognition, I would hope, is is, is something that's appreciated. 
Yeah, I would assume so, yeah. But yeah. You know, for those who are having trouble paying the rent, yeah. money is more important. Right, that's true. <laughs> so, um, there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Julia. This, is, this has been a, a pleasure talking to you and reading your book. And um, I guess, just last thing, I guess people who are, hopefully everyone who's listened to this whole show is is on board with the book, but just if, if you could give people a, um, why, I guess, why do you think people should, who are already caring about tennis, uh, which is a presumption for our show, uh, why huh. people should, should want to, to read your book and what they can expect to find in it. Make a little sales pitch here. Okay. Well, start with a plug. The name of the book is driven a daughter's odyssey. And it, it has several main themes all against the backdrop of the tennis tour, the, the top-level tennis. The main theme is my relationship with my mother and how that impacted me for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But also there is a lot of tennis, very accurate tennis hit, history told from an insider's point of view, often while I'm sitting in the room and we're talking about it. There's also a whole lot... Uh, the, the other the other theme we've been talking about is of mental illness, mm-hmm. how it impacted me, and how I've been able to get back on my feet after many years. And uh, I think that tennis people will probably really like the tennis part, but the the part about somebody struggling against adversity of many different kinds is something that seems to reverberate with lots of folks. Yeah. And, and, and just, you mentioned the tennis history and also just the world history. I mean, you do a, a pretty, yep. pretty thorough job of keeping everything in context and even just seeing you as sort of, uh, as someone who, you know, most recently processed or not most recently, but like did process the sixties at some point through watching mm-hmm. Mad Men or something, which is a historical right. drama there. There's, you know, you, there's sort of a, a bit of a, I don't know, a Forrest Gump type quality to your story almost. And these, and these famous things pop up in different things. And you talk about, you know, doing LSD and, and you know, having playing tennis with Bobby Fischer and this Fischer chess matches and all these sort of other historical things you're going all the time get get put into, woven into the fabric of this story. I think it's really, really interesting. I realized after I wrote it that I forgot one of those Forrest Gump moments. Oh, yeah? And it was some French... Um, journalist, I think maybe from Perry Match, but I'm not sure. And he had befriended Rudolf Nureyev, mm. who decided he wanted to um, become an exile yeah, from the uh, yeah. Soviet Union. So it came around this French journalist whom I knew said, could you help me get somebody to do some kind of a transportation thing? And he said, you said your father works for Shell Oil. Could he help? So I called my father. He says, okay. And believe it or not, that's Rudolf Nareto came uh, uh, in in Paris during the tournament, I think. And it, could, it might have been during the tournament. He got away from the Soviets. And a couple of weeks, three, four weeks later, the same French journalist says to me, how would you like to go see Nareto dance and have dinner with him afterwards? Huh. So I said, sure. And he was... It was way towards the end of his career. He wasn't a brilliant dancer anymore. His stage presence was unbelievable. But afterwards, we sat. There were a bunch of people at dinner. And he was so outrageous. 
He was swearing up a blue streak, and I, I don't. I'm not shy about that. But this was one a guy who was just way out there, and that was yet another one of my Forrest Gump moments. Very cool. Yeah, you mentioned Paris and the and the, and the unrest of the the in yep. 1968 that you talk about in the book too. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of interesting history in it. So again, congratulations yep, sure. on this on this incredibly thorough uh, book and the story you you put together, and hopefully as many people as possible go out and uh, and read it. There's a lot to a lot to learn. Thanks so much, Ben. Really appreciate it.